Hi, it's G3, and welcome to another episode of Green Marbles, recorded on Wednesday, November 8th. This week, I have Weiss's president and CIO, Jordi Visser, back on the show to talk about the regime change he's seeing in the markets. He is also eager to discuss who wins and who loses in this new regime and how he believes investors may want to get ahead of the new world that we are entering. As always, please check important disclosures at the end of the pod and join us for this far-ranging discussion. And with that, welcome. All right, Jordy, great to have you. Lots to discuss, but before we get into the markets, the rally, the economic data, the signs of moderating inflation, the VIX, goes on and on. I have my priorities in order here, so I want to ask you about the Melbourne Cup. What's <laughs> your take on how this race played out, sir? Very funny, G3. I, what was it? A, a couple of weeks ago, you asked me if I paid attention to it or whatever. And yes. I said, no, I have always wanted to go. But I did. It was funny. After you asked me, I do what I always do. I'm like, oh, yeah, let me take a look and see what it is. So I actually have a couple uh, things. First of all, as someone who's I'm assuming you haven't been to Australia? No. Okay. The reason I assume that is, do we have people in Australia that listen to this? We absolutely do. We have a good friend of mine who uh, mentioned the Melbourne Cup to me who lives in Australia, and that's why I brought it up to you. All right. Well, then I will do your friend a favor and tell you that you're saying it wrong. Okay. It's not Melbourne. It's Melbourne. Melbourne. That's mm. the way it's pronounced. Okay. Just like if you said... Louisville is not right. Right. It's Louisville for the locals and Louisville for people not in Louisville. Uh, Louisville. So that's the similarity there. It's a very different race in the fact that it's longer, but there's a couple things about it that I found interesting when I looked up. The first one is I think the attendance this year was somewhere around 75,000. Now, that may not sound like a ton, but the Derby gets about 150 to 160. But Australia only has 25 million people. We have 350 million people. So that means in U.S. adjusted terms, they're getting almost a million people, you Americans at the, <laughs> at the Melbourne Cup. The second thing, and this is something that I don't know how I kind of went in this rabbit hole and found it out, but this is really interesting. So I'll ask you a question. Who owns the fastest times in history in the Kentucky Derby, the Preakness, and the Belmont? Oh, my God. I'm not even one here. horse. The Secretariat. Correct. The fastest time ever in the Melbourne Cup is by a horse named Kingston Rule. Now, Secretariat never had a son who won the Kentucky Derby. He did have a son that won both the Preakness and the Belmont, but never the Kentucky Derby. Kingston Rule is the son of Secretariat. Oh, so the fastest wow. time ever in the Melbourne Cup is by the horse that has the fastest times in the triple crown races. See, there you go. You learn something new on In Search of Green Marbles all the time. Look at that green marble. <laughs> all righty. Well, I'd love to talk more about this, but we've got markets to discuss. So <laughs> moving on to that, one thing that I know you have thoughts on is this impressive rally on the back of the Fed meeting, some economic data pointing to moderating inflation. You have pointed out how much volatility has sold off. Risk on has reemerged. 
And on the back of that, you said in the morning meeting last week that we are at a macro inflection point that will shape next year. In today's morning meeting, you also talked about a regime change. Can you talk about all of this? Yeah. I mean, first of all, let's go back over the last two years and just we've done this podcast. So there's been one common thread that I've said for two years, no recession. So let's just start with that because it's important to where we're going to go eventually. Last year for the year, it was all about the Fed chasing what was supposed to be transitory inflation, but chasing the actual inflation. And that meant short rates were going up violently. And the peak for two-year rates in last year, I think in November, so like you know, about a year ago, was somewhere north of 480. We're at 494 today. So the reality is two-year rates did their damage last year. This year, it started with China reopening. That didn't work out too well for people. Then it ended up with SVB is going to take down the world and we're going to have a recession because commercial real estate and credit is going to collapse. That didn't do people too well until June. And then starting in June, we had one trend that sucked everybody into it. And this was long-term rates finally going higher because last year after SVB, we were down around 335 in 10-year yields. And we saw a rally from really beginning in May that got us all the way up to 5%. And that was on the fact that as I did in a webinar, you know, at, at the end of October, that was driven by the fact that people were expecting Q3 GDP to be negative so more people expecting a recession. Very famous macro people were calling for a hard landing in the second half of the year. So a lot of people were expecting that we'd see a recession. And we got GDP of close to 5% in Q3. So rates went higher. Now, the reason last week to me was an inflection is because we're looking for what next year's kind of, let's say, macro dominant place is going to be. And a lot of things have shifted because... Basically, I didn't expect us to be sitting at a place where inflation is where it is now and the Fed funds rate is where it is right now. So what happened last week is we finally saw what needs to happen for a recession to be the pendulum shift. So the last two years, it's been about rates are going higher. The Fed is going to keep raising until we get a recession because we need to have a recession to slow the economy and slow inflation. So every time the pendulum shifted for macro people, it was always centered towards, oh, we're getting a recession driven by interest rates going higher. As of last week, I believe now going forward, the inflection point is whenever we have recession fears, it's going to be based on deflation and it'll show up through rates coming down. And the reason is because jobless claims on Thursday were weak. The ism manufacturing stuff dropped from 49 to 46.7. We had talked when we had, I think nah, actually it was before Raul was on, I had mentioned that my risk grow index, it was on one of the ask Jordy anything. And I said, my risk grow index has gone down. So the ism is, looks like it's going to fall again based on that. So we did get a fall on the ism, but it wasn't just the fall. This is the 12th month in a row. It's been below 50 and over 95% of all the job losses in this country from 1970 on occurred at times where the ism was down at least 10 months in a row. Now, this time we've created almost 3 million jobs while it's been negative or a little over 3 million. But last week with inside the payroll data, this was the clincher. So we had the claims go higher, which indicated finally that continuing claims is now at, I think it's at one year highs. 
It's definitely at highs for the year. It's been up six weeks in a row. So we are definitely seeing layoffs and it's getting a little bit harder for people to get a job once they're laid off. But with inside the payroll data, whenever I show a webinar, I'm like, until I see the one month diffusion index with inside the payroll data, which basically just says how many industries are adding jobs and how many industries are taking away jobs. We dropped to 52% for the one month. Now, that is just a one month reading. If I take the average of the last five months, it's still up near 60. So I won't read this as we're having a recession. But the other thing is the labor report was weak. There were 150 some odd thousand jobs created, but average hourly earnings were down and the hours worked were down, which means the total aggregate number growth for the month was zero. That is basically a weak labor market. And that to me is been the only thing that's kept the inflationistas alive. Inflation has been coming down and we are absolutely seeing deflation in the industrial side of the economy. And I think this is going to be a persistent thing that's going to start to scare people. So that's the big change is I think we are now at a point where rates have settled. The highs are in. And now going forward, it's going to be about, oh, my God, the deflation is getting worse with inside this area it's going to spread across the economy. So whenever there's a fear factor of recession, I think it's going to be driven by deflation, not inflation. You have also talked about the changing nature of the economy, though, on the industrial side versus the service side. So talk about that within the context of your long-term views. Yeah, and that is the point I made up in today's morning meeting. You've been listening. Did you so. make it up or do you? Uh, I, I made the point today. <laughs> made the point. Okay. <laughs> you didn't make it up. I didn't go to an excellent college. <laughs> no offense, Manhattan College. So the economy has been changing for a long time, but since 2007, the digital economy has gone to some number, which is hard to measure because software is almost an impossible thing to truly measure as to what percentage of the economy. But between the service sector, which is driven by two main parts of the economy, which are healthcare. So unfortunately, we got a lot of old people and over 20% of expenditures in this country are now healthcare and travel and leisure, which is a baby boomer retirement thing, which is really hard to stop because they've now got their money sitting in money market funds and they have a 3% housing mortgage. So the baby boomers are now kind of set in this area where they don't necessarily need to work. There's tons of jobs if they want to go out there and get them for those particular lower level $15 an hour type jobs, part time, whatever they want. So we've got a weird economy where the industrial part to me is entering a recession. And I see that in many, many ways. There's a lot of stocks with inside the S&P 500, which have been in the S&P 500 for a long, long time. They have a lot of debt. And they're trading at multiple sub seven, sub five, sub four. And GM and Ford are sitting around a three PE. I believe you call them zombie companies. They're zombie companies. And I mean, again, we've just had this focus of a strike. There's not a lot of places left in the country that can have strikes. And it's part of the industrial revolution. And those companies are going to be in a recession with interest rates now where they are. So I've left it to the point where for next year for people, if I had to give a range for what the S&P does, I do think we'll make new all-time highs before we peak. So we're not far from that, maybe another 7 to 10%. But then once we get to all-time highs, I think, I mean, I hate to say it, but I think next year you're probably a range of down 7 to plus 7 S&P, which isn't too exciting. And maybe at some point during the year, 
I'd guess the fall could be greater than the rally once we kind of get through this end of year rally that I think is going to happen. So you're dealing with a very different world coming next year. And I think as we get into the year end, we start talking about the outlook for next year. We'll get in a little bit more detail. But I just wanted to make sure everyone realized I do think we're at a major reflection point. Oil broke below the 200-day moving average. It broke below 80. For everyone who wants to be an inflationista, I mean, I've said publicly, I'm going to continue to say oil is headed to zero. It's just a question of how long it takes. And I have believed this entire year that with the news that we've had that honestly, since Russia, Ukraine, you think about where we should be in that, if you would have laid it out, I just think it's telling you that there's demand efficiency that's in there and that we've lost GDP for the countries that matter in the world. Yeah, you and Raul, when I asked you the question, were both very much aligned on that. I asked you about trading geopolitics and the obvious implication was oil. And both of you said, don't try, don't be too clever by half. It's not going to work out for those people who think they can gain the oil market accordingly. And thus far, you both have been absolutely right on that. Let me just ask you one more question, though, about the industrials and the zombification of these companies. If that is, in fact, the case moving forward, are you going to rely less on the ism moving forward as a predictor of where you think economic conditions are going? The direction of the ism to me will matter, meaning if we go from 45 to 50, it matters. Where it is, whether it's 42 or 45, I don't think that matters anymore. And that's what I've said to most of the PMs here. I don't believe there's more business cycles. In fact, it's my number one theme. We are not having more business cycles. If we were having them, we would have had a recession this year. SVB would have caused it. Instead, we're stuck with rates at higher levels above inflation and with rates above nominal GDP. And we're letting the air out of everything. But I mentioned before that this manufacturing economy and retail. That's not what this country is about anymore. And people have to adjust to the numbers. So with inside the payroll numbers, you're talking about healthcare jobs, which are still growing 50 to 100,000 a month. If you take healthcare and government and again, leisure and travel, these are three very steady groups. Unless the government decides to fire a lot of people, the government's pretty much guaranteed to create jobs the way things have been going, particularly as the entitlement thing's getting worse and everything. It's just impossible to see the government really shrink a lot. Retail and manufacturing, they haven't been job creators combined since 1990. They're literally unchanged over the course of the last 25 to 30 years. And so for people to think that this is now not more of a non-cyclical economy because of healthcare, because of government, because of the travel and leisure on all of the net worth that's been created from the fiat asset bubble, I just think they're missing the point. There's been a fiat asset bubble that's created a tremendous amount of net worth. And now people are living on it with their mortgage rates locked at three and a half percent and the ability to getting a job whenever they want. All right. I want to go back to this. No more business cycles. It feels like a line from Imagine by John Lennon. You know, imagine no more business cycles in a world where we don't have them. Is that why you see the peak in fiat assets, meaning are those two concepts essentially two sides of the same coin? Yeah, let me expand upon it because you're bringing up something I said on Real Vision with Raul that caught his attention too. Yeah. And we've talked about this. This is really important because of what it means. The world has lived on asset inflation. I mean, as debt has gone higher, so have assets. 
So Raul and I talked about the need for, number one, population growth. So you need more people in the workforce. You need population growth. Number two, you need debt growth. So, yes, I believe now, officially, we are at the end of the fiat asset inflation bubble, whatever people want to call it. It's over to me. And I think the last 18 months have shaped my views on that. If you would have asked me in June of next year, I thought there was probably another five to 10 years left. And just so I explain to people, it wasn't until Joe Manchin basically stopped (laughs) the debt creation that in the U.S. I was like, wow, this is going to be harder for them to actually create a lot of debt. Now they move interest rates up. That's a big change. They move it to levels where the interest payments are an enormous part of, of the budget. China refuses to do a debt field growth recovery. And so when you go back to what Raul said, the debt situation just suggests that we're at the end of it. Now, population growth. I don't think people know this, but when you combine Europe, Japan, China, and the U.S., 70% of global GDP, no population growth anymore. We are in a fairly persistent decline that will start. The U.S. is still growing slowly. It actually went down because of COVID. Maybe Ozempic will slow down the the process on that. (laughs) But the reality is we're not creating enough kids to offset how many people are dying. And in particular, in Europe and in China, in Japan, this is going on. And in China, we know that it gets worse. So you're in a very difficult situation where you've got no debt growth, you have no population growth. What Raul and I said is that we need productivity to cover the baton. And I do think AI will eventually get there. So there's one more part of this, and this is really important for people to hear I wrote a paper called The Bitcoin Moment, I think in March, where I talked about the end of trust in the fiat system. I still believe that that is going on. I think you see it every single week. And where you see it is in bank deposits. And I've talked before on crypto podcasts about the importance for the fiat system of bank deposits. That is a problem that needs to be addressed. And when I say addressed, it can't be addressed. It's based on trust. And I think as I see the economy shifting, as I see business formations happening, as I don't see companies going from private to these massive companies and then going public, the fiat asset world is going to, at a minimum, go sideways. But I think it's going to start to decline gradually. But because I don't see debt coming off quickly, it will mature very slowly here. Corporate debt is going to roll off. Household debt's going to roll off because people aren't going to be able to borrow it at the levels that they are. And for a lot of the industrial companies, they'll go bankrupt and you'll lose that debt. So to just make sure that I understand what you're saying is you are calling for peak Ponzi. (laughs) We can trademark that meme, maybe. Because essentially we've gotten to the point in terms of debt where we just not going to be able to expand out the debt anymore and people are losing faith in the system. They're losing faith in the Ponzi. Yeah. And demographics are going to force it. You and I have we've had Sultan on a bunch and more importantly, we've talked to him off air about what it was like to try to explain to 60 plus year olds about crypto. Oh, my goodness. And artificial intelligence. The world is changing and the demographics are changing. And gradually this other non-public fiat world is gradually going down. Now, when I first say this to people, then it becomes this bearish negative thing. So I want to make sure there's a difference between having a flat tire where you run over a nail and having a slow leak that maybe takes two years for the tire to get flat. That's what we're going to be in. 
I gradually think the debt will roll over. The governments are not going to let markets fall violently. But I think there's already a lot of marbles out there that I can describe for people as to why this has already been happening and why it's absolutely starting to get obvious. And Bitcoin, in your view, is the ultimate release valve as that tire continues to leak air. Yes, Bitcoin okay. is going. And that's one of the marbles in the fact of how it's trading this year and also some of the news that's coming. But so people have this because I hate pontification where I get all these people on stage talking about why the world's going to end and why gold's going to go to infinity and how where the Middle East will spiral out of control. These are all parts of the distribution, but they're just pontification. So I like to deal in data to support this. So this has already been going on actually for a long time. And I just don't think people have realized it. And so you have to think of the fiat asset world into three separate buckets, actually four bonds, stocks, real estate, and then anything that's alternative and anything that's alternative. Yes, it includes hedge funds. Yes, it includes private equity. Yes, it includes venture capital, anything that's alternative, not crypto. Crypto to me is not alternative. It is a completely different community. It's a completely different system. It's a completely different decentralized world that is very attractive to younger people and it scares the hell out of older people. So let's just stick with the world that everyone listening to this knows. And for all the RIAs and all the people out there, yes, by the end of this, I will tell you what your asset allocation is supposed to be. And I've argued for five to 10% crypto. There's a lot of changes that I'm suggesting now that I'm making up personally as well. But I think this is preparing for the world. So first of all, we've also talked in this podcast about how MSCI world is 70% the United States of America. The reason it's 70% and not Japan, I think, was close to 70% back in 1989. The reason Japan has gone down significantly is because, believe it or not, their stock market is unchanged since 1989. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> MSCI World X the U.S. is unchanged since 2006. So I just want people to take that in. I know in the United States, you can't fathom the S&P not going higher. MSCI World, the rest of the world, the rest of planet Earth, X the U.S., <laughs> is unchanged since 2006. Commodities. Every time we have people talking about commodities, I got to invest in commodities, got to hedge against inflation, got unchanged since 2004. Well, at least I could buy bonds. The Barclays Ag, as of yesterday, is unchanged since 2011. I don't want to take people through the VC world, the carnage that's going on there that to me will continue. Now, again, people made a lot of money from 2007 on. They made a lot of money in tech stocks from 2007 on. The S&P 500 has been up double digits since 2009 on, meaning as long as you were invested in the U.S. and then when you break the U.S. down, basically as long as you were invested in seven tech companies. So when you break down what's actually happened, the fact of the matter is that we've been in a flattening of the asset world except for seven friggin' companies. When SVB went under, it highlighted something that's been happening since last year. So bank deposits in the banking system have declined now $800 billion since last year. Money market assets are up $3 trillion since 2017, and they've been up every year since then. The reason that matters is if all the money left the banking system and went into money market accounts, well, that's a lot of leverage coming out of the system. The reason you need 
the money in the banking thing is because for every dollar, it gets lent out 10 times. If it goes into a money market account, it doesn't get lent out. So as this money is leaving and going into a place that doesn't have the leverage on it, it is a slow leak in the fiat system. And the U.S., because of the size of the assets, is the most important bubble in the world. It is 70% of the investments for allocators. So right off the bat, you have that. Then when you go through and you think about well, what fueled a lot of the non-tech stuff from 2010 to 2020, it was buybacks. The U.S. buys back more stocks than any other place on the planet, and they were issuing debt to buy back stock. They're not going to be doing that at five and change percent for Fed funds where investment grade yields are up at six and change percent. Right. You can't issue debt to go buy back stock when you're no. paying five and a half percent. And here's the problem. And this is what people have to see. Investment grade yields right now are six percent. Nominal GDP year over year is six percent and declining. We're going to have nominal GDP below investment grade yields. Nominal GDP is top line revenue in this country. I've said inside these walls, and I'm going to say it to everyone there as part of this crypto discussion and what's happening into the private markets, top line revenue growth, whatever multiplier you've used in the past, between 1.4 and 1.7. So if nominal GDP was four, you could assume top line revenue growth of 7% to 8%. That number is going down. Going forward, top line revenue will not grow as a multiplier of the S&P relative to what's gone on for two reasons. One is uh, we've talked about the incredible growth in revenues that the S&P 500 had from overseas. Just look at what's happening with Apple in China. Are their revenues going to grow anymore? China was supposed to be a growth area for them. So now we'll pivot to, oh, India will give us growth. The problem you have right now that I've said repeatedly with AI and Raul and I went in is Google really going to be 90 plus percent of search in Germany at this point when AI is connected to everything in Google? Or is Germany going to say, we can't have Americans looking at all of our data the way it was? You're going to have every country in the world become localized with their technology. That is not good for U.S. revenues. So that's going to come down. And then the second thing is, as I've talked about, there's tremendous bankruptcies that are happening. They continue to grow in this country. I think there's going to be record bankruptcies over the next five years. But we also have a lot of business formations and these companies are going to stay small. So 2009 to 2020, the reason the U.S. did so well, we created companies that didn't need debt. So Apple, Google, Amazon, they didn't need debt. They scaled their business without debt. The next wave is to scale your business without debt and without humans. And because of that, you're going to see a rise of private small businesses that will never go public. Early stage, late stage is done. And I know nobody believes in this, but as part of the end of the fiat system, that's the reality. So what that means is best case scenario for people with 5% Fed funds rate, I would say stocks can get you 5% best case over the next 10 years. Bonds, 5%. Best case. If we have an asset deflation situation where the bubble's coming out, my guess is those numbers will be negative, and let's assume they're negative 6%, and bonds are plus 5 60-40 doesn't do well. And the one thing I know about all human beings, they want to find something that's working. And that's why crypto is going to end up being the gateway to what's working. And this year is just a representation because it is up over 100% this year. And there's a big event coming up soon. A big event coming up soon. And by that, you mean? The launch of the ETF. I traded ETFs at Morgan Stanley in the late 90s into 2000, 
two before I left in 2003. People did not use them. They didn't think they were going anywhere. Then they started to take off. They started becoming trading vehicles. Bitcoin is something, particularly after a year with FTX and Tether and all of the things that were headline blowups, people didn't trust it. And I especially mean people, every RIA was like, how do I invest in this? I'd rather invest in Kathy Wood's ARC, which hasn't done well and is a representation of part of what I'm talking about. Nothing against her, but honestly, public crypto companies, public innovation companies, I don't see them as being the winners. I see private companies that have ideas starting in a new world, never growing to the scale of 10 billion and being these little tiny billion dollar companies that are disrupting the other side. And what the ETF represents is something in the fiat world that we know. You mean I don't have to go open a wallet? I don't have to worry that Coinbase is going to go under. I don't have to carry something and not lose it. The seed phrase, yeah. Yeah. ETF can give people something in the fiat world that they're comfortable with. And to me, once they get added into model portfolios at 1%, people are going to realize there's just not enough liquidity out there for the amount of money that'll gradually come into it. Because again, the fiat world is $450 trillion dollars. Bitcoin's not even a trillion dollars. The total crypto market cap, I I still think, is under 1.5 trillion, even with the rallies we've seen recently. So you're dealing with a lot of money trying to go through a very tiny door, and that door is going to be the Bitcoin ETF when it gets launched. Okay, so based upon all of that and, and, and the several things that you have mentioned in terms of big trends that you're seeing here, um, my final question to you is, how would you advise investors to get ahead of this sea change that you were calling for? So let's just use it the way they think about it. Um, Everyone has some kind of asset allocation model portfolio that they do. So let's use the traditional one to start, 60-40. And they never tell you which one is equity, which one is fixed income, because if you go into Bloomberg, they're like, which one do you want? Do you want the equity 60-40 or the fixed income? Because the equity one's done much better. So you you don't want the 60-40 for fixed income. I think you should have 50% right now in money market funds. I think you should have about 30% in the traditional 60-40 world. Meaning that put in, you know, out of the 30% remaining, 60% of it in fixed income, 40% into equities. I would have more foreign equities than U.S. equities, mainly because of what I just talked about with a heavy tilt towards emerging markets who I think are going to benefit the most from AI in the crypto world. And that leaves 20% that people now should have in Bitcoin. And again, I'm not telling people to look into any tokens other than Bitcoin. I think Bitcoin represents the S&P 500 of the crypto world. People can talk about Ethereum. They can talk about Solana like you and Raul went through. I think everything I've learned about crypto, Bitcoin will always be the asset of choice there, the stable one. I don't view it as a currency. I view it as the banker or the M2 of the crypto world. And I think you want to invest in M2 with inside the crypto world. And that means you want to invest in Bitcoin and you want to be reducing significantly your weight in the fiat world. So 50, 30, 20. That's it. That's the new 60, 40 for you. I love it. That's it. 
And you've called Bitcoin the new M2, which for those older people that we've talked about who have a hard time getting their head wrapped around crypto, calling Bitcoin M2 is going to break their brains if they hear this. Yeah. And just remember, since I mentioned deposits, I didn't say it on this podcast, but I said it before, U.S. bank deposits make up about 85% of M2. M2 is down again this year. It was down last year. It's down again this year. You guys can go back and read your history books. M2 doesn't go down during the fiat asset bubble. So M2 is going down and I think it's only going to get worse, meaning I don't see M2 going up anytime forward. And that's why you have to find something to invest in. And all of the fiat world is based on US M2 and China M2 and Europe M2 and Japan M2. I would focus on crypto as now seeing not <laughs> benefiting from an increase in M2, but actually benefiting from a decrease in M2. All right. Peak Ponzi is here. This is great, Jordy. Thank you so much. Thanks, G3. This podcast should not be reproduced, copied, distributed, or published in whole or in part. This podcast is presented for informational purposes only. The views expressed herein are subject to change without any notice. Information in this podcast is based on data regarding current market conditions from sources believed to be reliable. Nothing in this podcast should be construed as investment, legal, tax, or other advice and should not be viewed as recommendation to purchase or sell any security or adopt any investment strategy. You should consult your own advisors regarding business, legal, tax, or other matters concerning investments. Any health-related information shared on the podcast is not intended as medical advice for use in self-diagnosis or treatment. Please consult a qualified healthcare professional before acting upon any health-related information on the podcast. Please also review related show notes for this podcast and visit us at www.gwise.com to review related disclosures and learn more about Weiss.